Good morning. It is Monday, June 29th, and this is Community Pulse, your local report on the coronavirus pandemic in mid-Missouri. You can catch Community Pulse Monday through Thursday at 9 a.m. on KOPN. And all episodes can be found online at kopn.org and on our Facebook page. Today on Community Pulse, our host, Dr. Elizabeth Alleman, will follow up on comments made on our show last week by Columbia Public Schools Superintendent Peter Steepleman that frustrated many of our listeners. Steepleman said the lack of mask requirements for students in the CPS reentry plan for fall was due to a lack of ability to enforce mask wearing in schools, especially for minority students. He has since sent us a statement with further explanation. Also today on the show, a new study finds no evidence that the current uptick in coronavirus cases can be linked to protests against police brutality happening around the nation. And we'll take a look at rising case numbers in Missouri. As Dr. Alleman commented a few weeks ago, it seems our good fortune of low numbers may be coming to an end. Dr. Alleman is a local family physician and host of Your Health Matters here on KOPN, and she's here on our phone line this morning. Good morning, Dr. Alleman. Good morning, Mallory, and good morning to to you, the listener. Indeed, I think that we have um, had this really long, several-month grace period here in Boone County of having very uh, little documented spread of the virus and very few uh, people sickening enough to be hospitalized, which has resulted in a lot of people thinking we overreacted initially, and it's always hard to know. Um, whether we did too much, uh, it's very easy to know when we don't do enough. Um, so let's let's just jump right into uh, keeping people informed so people can make the very best decisions they can. Worldwide, it looks like 10 million people have confirmed cases with a half a million people dying and 5 million or so recovered. Um, uh, in the United States, we are at 2.6 million documented cases uh, with 128,000 people dead and about a million people recovering. Matthew Holloway is gathering data for Missouri, which shows that 21,000 people have had documented uh, COVID-19 infection. He says 353 here in Boone County. Uh, Our official county numbers have always been just a little bit lower than Matthew's. Uh, We've got 1,000 deaths, uh, 1,026 deaths in in Missouri with still just two in Boone County. Um, The average, uh, seven-day average of positive cases is running just under 400. Um, so, you know, in in early March, mid-March, when we were really concerned about it, and it feels like we were at our first peak, we were at about 250 cases a day. Uh, we had a similar rise to almost 300 in early May. Um, and then uh, things fell to, you know, less than 200 cases a day. We're now up to, you know, almost 400 cases a day. So we have rising uh, community transmission that we're documenting. Um, yeah. And in southwest Missouri, we are still seeing this rapid rise in cases. So Joplin has 113 cases. The county that uh, comprises most of Joplin has 500 cases, and they are rising fairly rapidly. 
and let's see, to get the official uh, Boone County numbers, uh, they're saying total positive cases 334 with 97 active. Those are the people who are currently under quarantine for having a case that does not include people who are exposed. Um, uh, so those are not counted as case, so cases. So, um, you know, for many weeks, we had, you know, zero to five cases um, that were active. So we're we're just looking at a different situation now. Um, and every day, there are some people who come into quarantine and some that leave. So it's not the same people um, since quarantine lasts about two weeks. So that is um, uh, the, the numbers. And then we wanted, I wanted to first start with uh, following up from last week. So on Wednesday last week, uh, uh, Peter Steepleman, the <clears throat> superintendent of public Columbia Public Schools, was Jenny's guest on Community Pulse. And um, he was asked many things, and they talked about a lot of things in a small amount of time. And uh, whenever that happens, people sometimes uh, end up getting misunderstood. And the issue about mask wearing came up. Currently, their policy, predicted policy for the fall is that mask wearing will be recommended but not required for either staff or for anybody, for teachers, staff, uh, or students. And uh, when asked why that was, he made a comment about how it is difficult in Columbia public schools for them to enforce any policy in a way that is fair and does not land a larger burden on uh, students of color. And he said it in a way that implied that he was saying that the problem was that um, students of color would be more likely to be resistant and defiant rather than what he wanted to say, which was um, that students of color would be perceived as defiant and would be referred more frequently for disciplinary proceedings. So he, um, I have talked to him, he sent us a, he sent us a statement and um, uh, let's see. So when I said that I was concerned that children who wouldn't wear masks or would wear them inappropriately, might find themselves sent to the office for what would be labeled as disrespect or defiance. I was trying to be anti-racist as I was acknowledging a very real shortcoming for Columbia Public Schools. I just know that one child, a white child, might be told to fix their mask while another, a child of color, would be told to go to the office. Um, so I um, want to apologize to anyone um, for uh, any uh, racist comments that were made on community pulse, it is not for me to decide whether a statement was racist or not. Um, and I think it leaves um, still unanswered a question about why it is that given the realities and limitations of the culture we live in, why the Columbia Public Schools is still not requiring. I'm so sorry, somebody apparently wants to talk to me on the phone. Um, that we're not requiring masks um, when there's uh, scientific evidence that it would reduce transmission. So that still is unanswered. Um, so just, Mallory, there's been a lot of action on my phone. Are you still, am I still on, my, on the air? Yes, you're still on okay. the air. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, so I'm wondering if you feel like we need to say anything more. There's something I think that, that you think that I um, missed on that discussion. 
Um, I don't have much to add, just that, you know, our episode where we did talk about that re-entry plan for Columbia Public Schools was one of our most uh, most downloaded episodes. We got a lot of listener questions, comments, um, and it's definitely a topic that will continue discussing on the show. Um, so this isn't, you know, the end, the period in, on the end of a sentence. It's kind of a continuing conversation that we'll have and, and we'll keep following what's going on with all of that. Yeah, the question of the debate about what should be um, policy about mask wearing is one that the entire country seems to have engaged in. I mean, probably not every person, but in many localities. So there's a question for our city council currently. It's a question around the state. Some city councils are adopting it. Some are not, usually by fairly slim margins, uh, with a lot of passionate public um, testimony on both sides and um so I'm going to guess that that's going to be an ongoing conversation, and I am uh, willing to continue um, to uh, review the science as it comes out. The current state of the science, in my um, opinion, is that it clearly supports mask wearing. Does it prove that wearing a mask uh, prevents COVID transmission. I don't know that we have proof yet, but we have pretty strong, robust data that this is an effective uh, public policy. And since we have so few public policies and mask wearing allows people to continue to be socially interactive and uh, economically participatory, it seems like um, it's something that I support. So there's that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and then I wanted to talk about a couple of surprising articles. One was, or communication, one was from the Centers for Disease Control. The Centers for Disease Control is partnering with commercial laboratories to conduct a large-scale geographic seroprevalence survey that has tested de-identified clinical blood specimens from Connecticut, South Florida, New York City metro area, Missouri, Utah, and Western Washington State. So just to translate that a little bit, seroprevalence is how many people have the antibodies. So it's kind of asking the question of how many of us have already had this and we didn't know. Either we had the infection and we noticed it um, before there was testing available or in the presence of not, for whatever reason, not being tested or um, didn't have symptoms and still had the disease. So it sounds like what they're doing is that um, they're taking, whenever you go and get your blood drawn for, say, I don't know, you want to get your thyroid tested or you want to see if you have anemia or whatever, um, the lab often doesn't use all of your blood. And so that typically is kept for three or four days or maybe a week in case the physician or the nurse practitioner, the clinician who ordered the test says, hey, wait, now that, that I've got that result, I now want to know also this other test and so they can what's called a back order. And then apparently they've kept some of these specimens around when they when those when the back order when they would have otherwise been discarded, um, they were instead allowed they allowed the Centers for Disease Control or some maybe they just did it themselves, did a antibody SARS-CoV-2 antibody test on it. And I just want to be clear, as far as I know, these tests, these specimens are not kept long term. They are kept temporarily for a time so that things can get back ordered and then they are discarded. So in case people are worried that somebody is hoarding their results, of course, I don't know. It's my understanding that that's not what's happening. 
Anyway, in Missouri, it turns out that our seroprevalence rate was 2.65%, which is not very much. This is when we think we need 70% of people to have antibodies in order to get herd immunity. Some people argue that there's a little bit of herd immunity with every bit, but still we're looking, and when we want you know, vaccination rates, we want those to be in the 90%. So anyway, it looked, but this is higher than the percentage of cases we had. So we reported by, so this was done on April 26th. So we reported 6,800 cases, and when they're estimating, so if 2.65% is multiplied by the population of Missouri. And we could argue about whether that's really relevant. Like, is the population of Missouri similar to the population of people who get their blood drawn? Um, But that means that we've had 162,000 cases. So it's 24 times higher than what we thought. So around the country, it's looking like it's somewhere between 6 and 10% on average higher than the reported cases which means that our death rates are lower than what we're calculating as well. And I would love to do a, a session, a, an episode about death rates. I think that death rates are interesting, but they are one of the least interesting parts about this disease. Um, and they just because we have a low death rate does not mean that we don't need to worry about the disease. So that was interesting. Apparently there's more of this going on when it was whether we can t- trust the antibody test, I think we can. These are all these are all legitimate questions. Right. So, and again, have- we don't have any evidence right now that antibodies equal immunity or anything like that. Can you give us a quick recap on on that? Okay, so here's the thing. Is this there are very few diseases in which antibodies do not confer protection. So I am going to say that almost certainly antibodies in this disease are going to confer protection. Gotcha. How how high an antibody level you need to have to reduce your risk to how much, how long that lasts, we don't know. Okay. There are some illnesses, many illnesses that you can get more than once. Many illnesses you can't get more than once. Um, Coronaviruses kind of fall in both categories. So the common cold, most people get those coronaviruses more than once in their lifetime. So we are still, I think that what scientists are trying to say is we are not going to give people immunity passports based on antibodies. But would it change um, how much fear I felt about, get, concern I felt about getting this disease if I knew I had an antibody? Yeah, it would. Mm. Would it change my behavior? Probably because I'm human, but I would want to not change my behavior. Um, so there's that. Mm-hmm. Does that answer the question? Yes, thank you. Okay. And I do just want to note, um, every episode we, we post links to these studies that we're referencing in our show notes. So if you missed some of the numbers or you came in halfway and, and aren't quite sure what we're talking about, just know that you can go to the show notes of this episode, click on the links and see the numbers for yourself. Yes, and what I know is that there's a lot of really smart people all over the world, but for sure in Boone County. And many of them have more training than I do in reading the medical literature. And I would welcome feedback from people if they believe that I have misread, misinterpreted, or misunderstood a particular scientific study, or if they think there are additional ones that I should be concerning. Now, I really do not welcome a lot of, um, I do not welcome links to YouTube videos that are over five minutes and have a lot of um, dramatic music. So if that's what you were hoping to send me, no. If you have a link to a published um, or even a pre-published legitimate scientific uh, study, I'd be open to that. So 
that brings me to a pre-published scientific study. So uh, Black Lives Matter protests, social distancing, and COVID-19. So this is uh, an NBER NBER, National Bureau of Economic Research, and it, it, it's a working paper and it is being circulated for discussion and comment purposes. They have not been peer-reviewed or been subjected to the review by the NBER Board of Directors. Okay, so these are some, there are five uh, uh, authors, and they appear to have been trying to ask the question of all this protesting about police tactics, are they just going to spread the disease terribly? And the answer is maybe not. So we cannot, we, we aren't getting at the part I think that many of us are interested in is that is, did any of these people who went to these protests, did they give this disease to each other? And did they then infect other vulnerable people? I get it. That is not, they, that is not really the question that they were asking here. I think that all of us want to know that answer. But what they did was they looked at um, news reports of um, of studies of uh, protests, and combine that with um, self anonymized cell phone data that gives us an idea about how much movement each cell phone is doing, and especially how much the how much time the cell phone spends at its normal place of residing. So basically, it's looking at how much do people who carry their cell phones on them all the time, how much do they stay at home, and how much do they move around, and then correlated that also with um, the change in increases in daily cases of COVID-19 in cities that had ex- ex- protests versus compared to cities that did not. And what they found was that it looked like the cities that in cities that had protests, what happened was that um, on average, most people stayed home more because yes, there were a lot of people say 500 people um, went to a protest, but that would be often in a city where there were, you know, 100,000 or 200,000 or a million people who lived there. And the rest of people stayed away from the usually downtown centrally located protests. And that many businesses were either closed because they were damaged or because they were trying to, they, they knew they weren't going to get a lot of business or that they were concerned about their safety. And so the compensatory behavior of the, the, the rest of it did, um, people who did not um, attend protests, that they tended to stay home way more, especially if the protests were persistent or large or described by the press as violent. And that what we then saw in the three weeks after that was actually a decline in cases starting about three weeks after the onset of the protests. Um, so this is a very interesting thing, and it's like, oh, so the one way to keep people home is to have violent, large, persistent protests. I'm not recommending anybody do that. This is not my uh, proposal, but um, I think that we've a lot of us have been concerned that, and I've heard people say things like, how come we can't even have a, a public funeral for a loved one? Uh, but why are we allowing and encouraging people to protest? And I think that's a very legitimate question and concern, and it really does um, break my heart. Um, and I think that um, those are great questions. And 
And that brings me to another thing that just breaks my heart when people are delaying important life events and the marking of passages. And I am hoping that instead of delaying and postponing things like funerals, that we will begin to figure out ways to meaningfully go ahead and do these in a timely fashion. That grief does not age well, it doesn't store well, and that these meaningful um, celebrations and marking of passages are important. And I think what we're discovering is that more and more things can happen safely outside, especially even if we don't socially distance. So, um, So I am surprised that we aren't seeing an increased total of cases, given that people who are at protests are often very close together. They're often in large groups. It's often from, you know, people sometimes travel some distance to go to a protest. They are often shouting or chanting or singing, um, which we know increases the aerosolization, like more mist and droplets come out of your mouth when you speak, especially if you do so loudly. And, um, and people aren't able to stay very far away from each other. In addition, we also have law enforcement response. Those people have to come together as well. And we've often seen responses from law enforcement that are from different geographical areas. And they are working long shifts. I'm sure that they're having, having a hard time socially distancing from each other as well. And then we have the application of um, respiratory irritants and pepper sprays and tear gas, which have been shown to increase respiratory infections in the week or so after exposure and also make people cough. And so theoretically, you know, you might not get exposed to the person next to you's COVID-19 infection until they get tear gassed and then they're coughing and you're coughing as well. And then also there were some mass arrests where people were placed in um, really crowded uh, jails and prisons. And so one would think that that would also be a place where a lot of transmission would happen. So I was thinking that even if you had these other compensatory behaviors, we would still see increases, but that does not appear to be what we're seeing. Yeah, and I, Dr. Alleman, one of my questions somewhat related to this is uh, just with the rise in cases and um, the social norms, I think, being kind of changed from, you know, even four weeks ago or six weeks ago, it's not the social norm anymore that I'm seeing to stay home or to do gatherings outside or to not eat out or to not go into the grocery store, things like that. What's just kind of your overall recap or recommendation on, you know, folks who want to stay safe and stay healthy? Uh, while everything is opening up and life seems to be returning to some sort of of pre-COVID normal, um, what should people be doing right now? Yeah, so that's a great question. So like starting, see if I can get it in order and starting with the personal. So I would um, add, um, you know, colorful vegetables to your diet in large quantities. Um, So there should be one or two servings of vegetables at every meal, including breakfast. And that we would um, avoid alcohol and any product that is any food that is sweetened by anything, including natural sweeteners or artificial sweeteners, and primarily avoid things that are made out of flour, even whole grain flour. Those things are, and of course, things that are have uh, artificial uh, fats 
that are deep fat fried, especially in fats that have been heated frequently, um, because those things are known to be inflammatory foods. And we know we, you know, the biggest predictors of people who are going to have bad outcomes are obesity, diabetes, and high blood pressure. And those things are at their root are have inflammation. So there's that. Then movement, joyful movement on a daily basis, um, really good restful sleep if you can get it. Um, and in that also, I forgot to say, also avoiding alcohol. And I think that this is a, one of the things I'm seeing in conversations and on social media and in consultations with my patients is that sugar and flour and alcohol are often used as coping strategies. And I'm going to encourage everybody to find some new ones um, and to really get honest about how much of that you're, you're consuming. I think that everybody right now should be consuming 2,000 international units of vitamin D3 if you are over the age of like 12, and that can be modified for younger people. Even if you spend a lot of time outdoors and you're sure you get enough sun exposure, I am so surprised at the at the lack of correlation, especially in people over the age of, say, 30, who between their sun exposure and their vitamin D levels when we measure them. And the only exception would be people have had their vitamin D levels measured and they're being guided based on that. I think that that, uh, you know, between 500 milligrams and 1,500 milligrams of vitamin C every day, and I think it's like 20 milligrams of zinc, are probably correlated with lower risk of infection and lower risk of serious complications. But the vitamin D is pretty clear. So the vitamin C and the zinc are a little bit less clear, but I think that's emerging. And then I think your question was, what about our social interaction? So I would encourage people to, again, wash your hands frequently, Avoid touching your face. Avoid interacting with other people that are not in your household indoors and wear a mask when that can't be avoided. And so um, I, I think we spent a lot of time talking about decontaminating surfaces and objects, and I think that is way less important than um, so you're much, I think people have been concerned about like getting curbside or delivery groceries because that means another person touches your things. No, it seems very clear that having those things delivered or picked up curbside is better than going into the store if you can. And I'm seeing more and more retailers being willing to offer that as an option. And I would encourage people to take that as an option if you can. So, um, and then, you know, pick up or curbside or delivery for restaurants as well. And then if you have a meaningful event, like a meaningful life event, someone dies, someone's getting married, then let's modify those things and do them outside. Great. Thank you for, for giving us that, that recap. That was helpful for me to hear, I know. Um, and I hope it was helpful to some of our listeners. Well, I think that's all we yeah. have time for today, Dr. Allen. Absolutely. Is there anything I know we've else? kind of gone over. No, although Tim just sent me an email this morning, and I don't even know how to process that now. Community Pulse is on Spotify. Right. I think that's something to celebrate, isn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah, I guess woo-hoo. so. <laughs> I'm not even sure what it means, but it seems, <laughs> seems remarkable. So, woohoo! Yes. yes. So, you can find us right. on thank, Spotify. Thank you so much, Mallory, and thank you. Thank you. That's it for today's edition of Community Pulse. As Dr. Alleman mentioned, you can catch Community Pulse Monday through Thursday at 9 a.m. And now you can also catch it on Spotify, in addition to KOPN.org and on our Facebook page. As always, we want to know what questions, comments, and insights you have related to coronavirus. Leave a message for, message for us at 573-874-1139. You can also email gm at kopn.org or find us on 
Facebook and Instagram. Up next, we will have a brief music break followed by an abridged version of Background Briefing. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to KOPN 89.5 FM, your volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station. I hope you enjoy this sunny day. Stay safe. Go outside. And we'll catch you tomorrow.